Well, good morning. Okay, let's try that again. It is 1045. We need to be awake by now. Good morning. That's a little bit better. It is good to be back with you today. It's also great to be able to like take weekends off and be in a place where I know that you are going to be well taken care of and uh, we have great preaching when I'm not here too. So uh, thank you for being here again. As we dive into week four of this sermon series, my question for you is, who do you think of when you stop to think about someone who is bold or courageous? Who are the people in your life who you would think of, whether you know them, whether they're famous, whether you've read stories about them, who are bold and courageous? The Bible's filled with these type of characters and these type of stories, and they make bold stances for their faith. Noah built a boat in the middle of a desert. Abraham left his house and his family to go live in a foreign land. Moses challenges Pharaoh, leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land and takes on all these foreign armies. King David takes a nine-foot giant with five stones and a slingshot. You could unpack just about any prophet. You know, I think about Elijah, Amos, Jeremiah, Really, all of them but Jonah. Poor guy, he just gets left out a little bit. Moving to the New Testament, you've got the Apostle Paul, who's teaching and preaching and planting churches in the face of incredible persecution. And I'm sure you've got some that you could add to your list of people who are bold and courageous or your favorite Bible stories. But we find these characters outside the Bible too. We find people who are living their faith in real ways outside of Scripture. Uh, A little while ago, Corey and I were watching the movie Harriet. And if you have never watched this movie, I highly recommend it to you with one caveat. It is intense. So just be prepared, and it's probably not child appropriate. But there's just some things that happen. It's the life story of Harriet Tubman as she helped slaves escape through the Underground Railroad. And what stood out to me about Harriet in her life was the work that she did as she would even at a young age, standing up to her slave owners, standing up to defend other slaves, taking punishment that was meant for other slaves as she stepped in to try to stop it. And at 12 years old, this belief that she would one day be free in a world that never saw anyone who looked like her be free. Yet when she achieved freedom, she spent a little time in Philadelphia, but that wasn't enough. For Harriet. It wasn't enough for her to be free. It was her bold and courageous faith, her belief that God wanted everyone to be free, that sent her back 19 times into the heart of the South, into the teeth of slave owners and slave masters who would have killed her on a heartbeat if they could have caught her. And she ends up leading somewhere between 70 and 300 other slaves to freedom in these bold acts and courageous acts of faith. She later served in the Union Army as a spy against the South. One of her former uh, or fellow abolitionists said this of her, I have never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God. 
Never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God. Can we pause there for a minute? I want you to think about your life. I'm going to think about my life. What would change in our communities if people looked at us and said, you know, that Jason, I've never met anyone who had more confidence in the voice of God. What impact would we be making in our community, in the world around us, if people could make that statement about us and it was true? You see, this idea of bold and courageous acts of faith brings us to our third core value, which is unhindered faith because Jesus calls us to live courageously. Unhindered faith because Jesus calls us to live courageously. If this is your first Sunday here in a while, welcome. We're in week four of our At the Core series where we're looking at our new mission statement, our new core values, and really seeing what's at the heart. And this pyramid helps us remember everything we're supposed to be about. It all starts with our purpose. Our purpose, love God first, love our neighbor as ourselves second. Everything we do builds off that concept of love. From there, we move to our beliefs. These are the things that I define who we are. They're things we're never going to change. They're our core set of this. This is true. But even as we hold to that, we don't use that as a tool against other people. We invite them into the conversation. We lovingly explain why we have that. From there, we move up to values. Those are our guardrails. They guard and keep us on track, driving towards our mission. And our mission statement is, say it with me, connecting. You guys are getting it. Still a little hesitancy there, like, okay, can I read it off the screen behind me or not? It's in really small font. But we're getting there. It's connecting everyone with Jesus, community, and purpose. And then out of that, we live these values. The first week of you were here is unimaginable transformation because Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. At the heart of this value is this idea that each and every one of us every day needs to be transformed to look more like who Jesus is. To be more like him. We've never, we'll never arrive this side of heaven. You might remember the exercise I gave you as we walked through that. Before Jesus transformed my life, I was blank and blank. How would you characterize your life before you met Jesus? And it doesn't have to be just that one time you prayed a prayer, but like, what was it like before Jesus really came in? When Jesus stepped into my life, I felt blank and blank. And now my purpose is this. That's what transformed life looks like. Then Chase last week talked about unassuming authenticity. Because we genuinely love people the way they are. As we read the Gospels, we see these two values in tandem all the time. Jesus walking in to people's mess, meeting them where they are, welcoming them in before they're cleaned up, and loving them in that place. We want to be a church that gets into the mess of people's lives, loving them as they are in introducing them to Jesus, who's the only one who can transform. It's not my job to transform your life way above my pay grade, way above my pay grade. But it's our job, church, as we walk together 
to step into the mess of people's lives we love and care about, introducing them to Jesus and allowing him to transform them. Now I've heard a little chatter. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm gonna assume it's good, that everybody's really excited. That's why we're talking about stuff, right? But one of the things that keeps coming up is, this is gonna be so great for them. I, I just wanna make sure we don't miss this. These values are about us first. It's not about anybody else. It's about me and my relationship with Jesus. It's about you and your relationship with Jesus. Have we been transformed? Have I been transformed? Not how can I transform my neighbor? Have I been transformed? Have I encountered and experienced authenticity in this place? If I have, how can I invite somebody else to come with me and show them that same authenticity? And then this week, our third value, unhindered faith. Because Jesus calls us to live courageously. Calls me and you to live courageously. Not somebody else. Not, not that, oh, well, that's their job. No, it's our job. So as we dig in this morning, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, pull out your phones, open up a Bible app, whichever one you use, to Acts chapter 4, verse 5. Now, if you don't know much about the book of Acts, it's really a history book. It's going to unpack for us what life looked like in the early church as the apostles kind of began to carry on Jesus' work after he died, resurrected, went back up to live with the Father. The apostles are here, and this is what they're doing. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, we tend to jump to the second half of Acts. We talk about Acts 1, where Jesus leaves the disciples. We talk about Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes. And then we, like, delete Acts 3 through 7. And just jump right to Saul's conversion. Saul becomes Paul, writes half the New Testament, plants a bunch of churches. He's a really big guy. We should understand his life. But there's some stuff that happens in Acts 3 through 7 that's also really important for us as a church. And so as we dive in to Acts chapter 4 today, what you're going to see is Peter transformed to be the leader of the church that Jesus always believed he would be. Watch this impetuous and reactive follower of Jesus become the rock and boldly declare the truth of who Jesus is and was. Jesus knew and had seen the potential Peter had. And now we get to see it lived out. And as we jump into Acts 4, we're actually jumping in in the middle of the story. So let me give you a real quick summary of Acts. I don't want to read two full chapters. We'll give you a quick summary of what happens in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going to the church. They're going to the temple for prayer. So you can kind of imagine this. You're driving your car up. You're pulling into the, <clears throat> the driveway out here. Hold on just a second. And there's a beggar sitting on the side of the road, right? They're begging for money. They're asking, do you have anything? Peter and John, like, stop, roll down the car window. I'm sorry we don't have any money, but what we do have, we'll give you. And so the guy's like, what do you got? And he's like, get up, be healed, pick up your mat, you're healed, walk. This guy's been there for over 40 years. Begging, waiting. He thought, There's no hope in this guy's life. Now you can imagine, if, if Great Oaks had existed for 40 years, and you had been coming here for 40 years, and you saw the same dude sitting out there for 40 years, and all of a sudden he was gone, you'd be like, where'd that guy go? What's going on? And so there's like some commotion that begins to form. 
And a crowd begins to form around Peter and John. And the religious leaders, this might be one of my new favorite verses in scripture. The Bible actually says they become very annoyed with Peter and John and their teaching. I'm like, I didn't know the Bible used the word annoyed. That's awesome. So they're just, they're like, like go away, shoo, be gone. So they're like, what are we going to do with these guys? Let's arrest them. So they arrest them, throw them in jail. It's too late to try them that day. So they just leave them in jail overnight. And that's uh, where we pick up our story today in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. It says, The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders are a people. We are being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man. Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, from whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, Peter's response, right? They bring them in. They're in this trial. And Peter's like, hold on, time out. We're, we're here because we healed somebody? Because we did a good thing. You have now brought us to trial. And I don't know if Peter is like sarcastic or like disgusted at this point. You're the religious leaders. You're the people who are supposed to be helping everybody. You're the people who are leading the church. You're the ones who are supposed to be telling the Messiah's come. We're doing the same thing. It was Jesus. You guys just missed it. And he is very clear in his statement that it's in Jesus' name they've been doing these things. But Jesus warns, warned his disciples that this would happen. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17 says, But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. Not in, this, not in, not in town square. Not in the court. Inside the church. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other believers about me. When you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it's not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. And that's exactly what we see. Acts says the spirit came on Peter and he responded with boldness. In whose name and power did we do this? We did it in Jesus' name. Oh, and don't miss this. The one that you guys who are trying us, you killed him. He wasn't, he didn't shrink away from it. The spirit came on and he was bold. And he was passionate about what he said. Now keep in mind, this is Peter. 
I know we all remember like Peter, right? He's the guy who pulls out the sword, cuts off the soldier's ear. He, of course he's bold. No, no, no. Three to five months earlier, Peter's standing around a fire and a servant girl walks up to him and goes, wait, 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 weren't you with Jesus? Not me. Must have been some guy who looked like me. He's my doppelganger. Wasn't me. To a servant girl. You see, Peter has experienced again an unimaginable transformation because of the presence of Jesus in his life. And it's because of that that his faith is now unhindered. He's living in boldness. The story continues. These leaders are surprised at the boldness of Peter and John. They realize these two are Jesus, but their real problem is they have a guy who's been begging for 40 years who's now standing in the courtroom behind Peter and John, right? They can't make this go away. Oh, we'll just pretend like it never happened. It's fake news. Never really happened. No, the guy is there. And so now the church, the religious leaders are still at the same question they've been at since Jesus walked in Jerusalem in his last, last week of life. What are we gonna do with him? What are we gonna do now not with Jesus, but with Peter and John. And their decision is, we'll just tell them to stop. Guys, just knock it off. You can go home and read it. It's Acts chapter four. I'm not making it up. That's what they decided. So we'll pick up the verse again in chapter four, verse 18. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who'd been lame for more than 40 years. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, and their prayer continues for the next several verses. I don't think Peter's sarcastic anymore. I'm not even sure he's disgusted. I think he's just angry. Are you serious? You're the leaders of the church and you want me to listen to you and not God. Not going to happen. So they threaten him a little bit more, but they're powerless to actually do anything. They've got a heel guy right in front of them. And so they're like, fine, just go. What I don't want you to miss this in this, though, is where Peter and John go. They don't like tuck tail and be like, oh, no, they're going to arrest us again if we share Jesus. What are we going to do? No, they run back to this church. They tell them everything that's happened. And the whole church that meets in this house hits their knees in prayer. And if you unpack the rest of their prayer, they pray that they would continue to be bold. They would continue to declare the truth of who Jesus is, that they wouldn't be stopped. And that God would continue to use them to make these bold declarations. And our story ends with Acts 4.31. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. God did for this church what God always does. He showed up and he reminded his followers that he was with them. 
There might be some of us who are like, hey, I've been waiting for God to show up. You can't tell me God always shows up. He does. Maybe, maybe we're so busy and there's so much noise in our lives that we don't actually pause long enough to hear him show up, to hear how he's going to respond. Maybe he shows up with an answer we don't like and so we dismiss him actually showing up. But please don't doubt that he shows up. Story after story after story in the Bible show us that God shows up. Especially when life is hard, we don't have to go through it alone. And I want you to understand that as we seek to live on mission, boldly declaring the truth of who Jesus is, God is with us and will strengthen us. Great story, right? So what do we do with that? I think there's actually four truths about what under unhindered faith can look like in Germantown Hills in 2023 that this story makes clear. First, unhindered faith comes through the Holy Spirit. Unhindered faith is not something we do on our own. I can't just muster this up in my own strength. Peter didn't just muster this up in his own strength. It says the Spirit filled him. It's the Spirit that makes us this bold. It's the Spirit that helps us declare the truth. It's the Spirit that helps us figure out, how do I say that so that I say truth and I say what needs to be said, but I say it in a way that helps them experience love, that invites them to ask more questions? Paul says this to Timothy, who I don't actually think was bold by nature, right? I think Timothy is the introvert, the shy, quiet leader who's still called to lead the church. We're not all called to do this the same. Please don't do it like me. The world needs no more of me. But Paul says to Timothy in 2, Peter 1, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That's the spirit who lives inside of us. A spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit that builds discipline in our lives. So I had the opportunity, I've had multiple opportunities to lead mission trips to New Orleans. This was probably my fourth or fifth trip. It was 10 years after Katrina had happened and we're, they're still rebuilding. And I took a group of students down there and I had been their youth pastor for about six months. All right, so secret to those of you in the front row, the only thing your youth pastor wants after six months is for you to like him, right? We just we want you to be like, okay, we can do this thing together. I'm not awful. I know I'm not the last guy, but I'm not awful, right? So like, can we build some camaraderie here? And I'm like, this trip is gonna be great. So we drive to New Orleans. It's a different place than they've ever been before. They already don't like it. And they're like, we're not sure about this new guy. He didn't let us go to where we wanted to go before. And we get down there and we could pick all different types of activities we're gonna do. We're gonna go do an inner city like day camp for these kids. So we're going to be in an inner city church. There's going to be 25 kids. The leader told me, I need one of your kids for every one of our kids. And I'm like, you need one high schooler for every? He's like, some of them will need two. 
oh, okay, well, we're bringing more kids than you have. This should be fine. By the end of day one, five of my students have been punched. Multiple of them have stepped inside of a fight to separate kids. They have hated the whole day. It is hot. They feel like all they've done has been yelled at because they have to yell at the kids. And in, we were too soft. We didn't want to yell at the kids. So it's like, no, you've got to be like, sit down and shut up. And they were like, we can't tell a kid to shut up. And so at the end of the day, we're back. We get in the van and they're like, please don't make us go back there. We are not going back to that place. And so I sit down with all my adult leaders. I send them off to get cleaned up, showered, get ready for dinner. Sit down with my adult leaders. And I'm like, what do you want to do? And they're like, we are not going back there. And I'm like, wait, time out. You guys don't want to go back there? And they're like, mm -mm, we are not going back there. And one guy looks at me and he says, Jason, I understand what they're saying. But you told me that you hated to leave things undone. If we don't go back, this project is undone. And I can tell you, in, in the core of my being, as I drove that van back, all I could think about was, this trip is a failure. My goal was to bring these students down, expose them to a new culture, build some teamwork together, and everybody hates me. The guy said that in that meeting, and something came over me. We're going to credit that to the Holy Spirit. And there was a sense of like, this is what we have to do. And so we went back. And I remember, I walked into that room for our small group time and they're like, where are we going tomorrow? And I'm like, we're going back. And the groans were audible. Like, no, we're not. Yes, we are. I'm not talking to that kid again. He hit me. Yes, you are. He's an elementary school kid. He did not hurt you. And what we found out, day three, I'm talking to the pastor of this church that's hosting this club. We were the first church in four years that ever came back for day two. And what we saw is the Spirit filled those kids and us as leaders to embolden us to take the courageous step to be like, we're going back. Those kids who were more interested in hitting my students on Monday were hugging them in tears that we were leaving on Friday. Because the Holy Spirit worked through us. Please. I was as terrified as anybody. I'm like, they're going to hate me. All I want them to do is like me. They're going to hate me. The Spirit works in us to make us bold. As we live lives every day, where are you looking for opportunities to boldly live out your faith? As you go about your business, where are you trusting the Holy Spirit to lead you? Say, I'm going to be bold here. I'm going to love you in a bold way. I'm going to serve you in a bold way. I'm going to give of my time in a sacrificial way. The second thing is unhindered faith is possible because we are not alone. Peter had John. They're not in this alone. I wonder if John wasn't there, if Peter would have been as bold. I can tell you if it wasn't for a team of adults who said, okay, we can do this together, I would not have been as bold. We need each other. We're designed to live in community. We worship a God who exists in relationship. And it's because of that design, the image of God in our lives, that we need each other. 
We need people to pray for us. We need people to encourage us. We need people to say hard things to us. We need to understand even when we feel like we're alone because there's nobody else around us, the Holy Spirit is living in us and Jesus is present with us in the midst of that. We're never alone. It's why we think life groups are such a big deal. Because you get somebody who knows you. It's easy to shake hands on a Sunday morning as we walk out of the building and say, hey, see you next week. Everything's great. We all smile, right? We get to the car and we're like, oh, my life is exhausting. Life groups where you get a chance to walk in on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday night and just be like, oh, my life is exhausting. Help. We live on under faith when we live it in community because we can't do it alone. Unhindered faith is unapologetically gospel-focused. Now, this, this one in particular can be a little dangerous, right? We're like, unhindered faith. Yeah, let's go be bold and courageous. Anybody know somebody who's bold and a little obnoxious? Yeah, oh, I saw a couple of hands. Some of, you are, some of you are brave enough to raise your hands. Others are like, I can't raise my hand. They're in the room. I don't want to say that. This is not that kind of bold. This is unhindered because the gospel matters. Because I'm living in obedience. Think about what Peter and John had heard just two chapters earlier before they healed this guy in Acts chapter 3. Jesus, right before he leaves, says this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last words Jesus taught them before he ascends back up to the Father. And church, we're here today because those guys took that word seriously. Because Peter didn't stop talking. Because Paul didn't stop talking. Because they prayed for boldness. What I want you to see in their boldness, though, is they ref there was a refusal. A refusal to demand policy change. They didn't demand their rights. They didn't try and rewrite the laws of an incredibly corrupt Roman government and kill Christians for sport, that killed Christians for sport. They simply shared their story of transformation. They shared the truth of the gospel. Why? Because they knew it would help the person they were meeting with. Their bold faith was unapologetically gospel-focused, and that minute was unapologetically meeting the needs of those they were serving. It wasn't about making them look good. It wasn't about gaining power and prestige. It was about the opportunity to help someone's life change eternally. Church, how would Germantown Hills, Metamora, Central Illinois be different if we were as focused on sharing the gospel and not being hindered in that as Peter and John? If we lived our lives every day where we are, I know you guys are like, I'm too busy. Don't ask me to do one more thing. I'm not. I'm asking you as you're going about your life. For my family, as we're standing on the sideline of a soccer field, 
How are we engaging in conversations that can transform somebody's eternity? As you're sitting, listening to your kid play or waiting for the play practice to be over or the musical performance to start, how are you interacting with the people in the bleachers? As you walk your dog through your neighborhood, how are you looking for opportunities to be bold and courageous in the way we show acts of kindness and declare truth to our neighbors? What about in your workplace? How are we looking for those opportunities to be gospel-focused? Peter's words to the church in 1 Peter 3.15 are pretty simple. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do it in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. I can tell you what would happen if we do this. It's actually point four. Unhindered faith is attractive to those who are seeking. If we would start to live this way, we have a natural attraction to people who are passionate, who actually believe what they say, who live it out, who do it every day. Think about it. Acts chapter one opens this book, not with 11 disciples. There were 11 at the end of John. Judas is gone, so we went from 12 to 11. Acts chapter 1 opens up with 120 as Jesus leaves. Peter preaches one sermon, declares the truth of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit anoints him. His presence is there. And 3,000. And now in Acts chapter 4, they heal this guy. He again declares the truth of the gospel. And Luke tells us in Acts, there are 5,000 men. 11, 120, 3,000, 5,000. This is attractive. How many of you are watching with curiosity the revivals that are beginning to pop up all over our country? Started in Asbury. Nothing real fancy about Asbury, Kentucky, I'm just saying. But God's spirit is working, and now it's spreading. Another one in North Carolina. And you begin to look and put cities across our nation where God's spirit is working, and things are happening. I do this every once in a while. As I read scripture... For the most part, the majority of the people in the Bible who hear Jesus teach, who see the disciples live, are curious. They either want to know more or they choose to believe, and there's always some who reject, and that's okay, that's going to be the nature of it. But it seems like there's a large number of people who just keep believing, who just keep understanding, who just keep being attracted, and these numbers grow. Do you ever read that and wonder, what are we doing wrong? Because I don't think all the times the way we live out the gospel is attractive to the world outside. I think they have reason to say, mm, no, no thanks. What would it look like if we were bold and courageous, gospel-focused, together, 
spirit-led, we'll see lives and communities transform, church. And before you think, oh, he just wants a big church, I could care less if they ever walk onto this property, if they plug in somewhere. I want to see lives transformed. I want to see the spirit poured out here. I want to see us live with unhindered faith because Jesus calls us to live courageously. Just a minute, the worship team is going to come out. They're going to lead us in a song. The chorus of that song goes like this. We are more than conquerors through Christ. You have overcome this world, this life. We will not bow to sin or to shame. We are defiant in your name. We're the fire, you are the fire that cannot be tamed. You are the power in our veins. Our Lord, our God, our conqueror. I've been around church long enough. I know how we end services, right? You're all waiting for me to pray because you're hungry and want to go to lunch. Can we pray? The band's going to come out, sing one more song, and we're going to go home. I want to invite you this time to pray. I want to ask you to pray. Ask yourself this question and talk to Jesus about it. Do you believe that Jesus conquered death, sin, and shame in your life? Do you live like you believe it? Second question. Will we allow the Spirit to embolden us to tell others about him? As they come out and play... I don't do this very often because it borders on emotional manipulation. So I'm just going to own that up front. I want to ask you to pray about those two things. And when you're ready, and if you want to live unhindered faith, I want to encourage you to stand and sing this song at the top of your lungs. Don't worry, the music's loud enough. If you can't sing, we'll cover it. I want you to sing it like you believe it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we're sorry for the times we shy away. God, we read stories like Peter and John and we just can't even imagine it. The truth is sometimes we read stories on the internet about things that are happening at Asbury or in different parts of the world or in the Philippines where these revivals begin to seem to be happening and we just go, ah, it's, it's not real. God, forgive us. And allow your spirit to run through us in ways that impact our community. God, not so people or care what we think or who we are, but so they'll know there's a God who loves them and who can transform their lives. As you're ready,